Are you looking to pursue excellence and take your success to the next level? You're in the right place. Welcome to Excellence Mindset with your host, Ryan James Miller. Hey there, everybody. So we're living in an interesting time right now, and I just wanted to first say that uh, if you are listening to this podcast episode today uh, and you are in need, you just need someone to talk to, you need a conversation buddy, you need some encouragement, some support, maybe someone to run an idea by, I want to encourage you to reach out to me. You can email ryan at ryanjamesmiller.com. That will go directly to me, and I am happy to do whatever I can to support you during this time. Please, please, please know that that is me speaking from the bottom of my heart. No strings attached there. Beyond that, you know, I'm trying to do as much as I can just to continue to pour into my coaching clients, uh, to my audience, to my consulting partners. And I've been able to do that in a couple of different ways. I'm getting ready to launch uh, a, a insurance broker specific uh, six month coaching program. Super excited about that. It's called Broker Excellence. I'm ready to launch my next round of foundation small group coaching that's on personal and professional development, building the foundations, functions, and freedoms to live the life that we want to live. Super pumped about that. And every Friday at 11 o'clock Pacific time, I've been doing authentic conversations, really just an opportunity for me to share some insight and wisdom into some of the things that I've been experiencing around performance and leadership, sales, marketing, so many different things. So you can go to my website, ryanjamesmiller.com. You can find all the stuff there. The coaching programs are under the coaching tab. Uh, the webinars are under the events tab which just hover over the blog and it'll pop up there. So anyway, hope you're well, hope you're great. Please let me know if there's anything that I can do for you. I love you all so much. I'm so thankful for all your support. And now here's episode 80 of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. Thanks so much. All right, well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. I am excited. Uh, today because uh, we are going to be talking about something that is going to uh, be very, very new uh, to a lot of people in terms of concept and idea. And yet, um, I believe that it is going to be extremely interesting whether or not the topic specifically is relevant to you uh, because a part of what um, uh, this gentleman's organization is doing is helping people to identify opportunities to preserve, to prolong the life that they're living, and to even potentially save a significant amount of money in doing so, um, and just working through some really unique paths along the way. Um, also because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, quite a bit, but uh, I was referred to him uh, by one of his employees when I was looking for great uh, organizational leaders and uh, one of his employees reached out to me and said you got to talk to this guy because he's one of those guys and so with that I want to welcome Darren Rowe he's the chief innovation officer of Womberg genomic advisors so Darren thanks so much man appreciate the opportunity thanks for being here it's a pleasure <clears throat> And so right away, I gotta, I gotta ask, though I know, just so everybody else does, most people know that I'm, um, um, I'm jealous and envious of anybody that has a cool accent. So it, <laughs> it comes out right away. Where does it come from? Uh, it comes from England, comes from London. Uh, I've, been in, I've been in the US for going on two years now. So um, 
hopefully I'll manage to maintain my accent, but I've got to say it works both ways. I think you've got a really cool accent too. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Uh, have you ever, have you ever seen the, um, uh, the bits that have been done on Saturday Night Live around uh, the California like accent? No. Oh, gosh. Okay, so for you, definitely. But anybody else listening, just Google. I think it's California. It may be Southern California, but I think it's just California and Saturday Night Live. And they are some of the most ridiculous things uh, that people <laughs> say. But uh, just talking about the way we describe our freeways and traffic and uh, the ridiculous number of people that we have living here. Anyway, it's really, really funny. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I've got to ask a couple of questions. Uh, so one is, why the hell would you come to the United States? Because I feel like, it, I mean, we're not that Europe's not either, but like we're in chaos. And so like nobody can get <laughs> along. Politics yeah. is like a train wreck. A uh, healthcare, which we're going to talk about too, is the business that you went into. That's yeah. a mess. So I feel yeah. like you you made this conscious decision to jump into the garbage pit. And so what <laughs> happened? <laughs> well, uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I mean, the, the long and short of it is that I have uh, an American wife. Okay. So like all good husbands, I followed her across the Atlantic, and here I am. Um, so you know, we got we got married. We lived in London for for a number of years, and then we have a young family, so we decided to move back. And I've been in this business for you know about seventeen plus years. Mm. Um, in in terms of jumping from one chaotic environment to the next, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you, unless you've been living under a rock, you'd know what's going on with Brexit. I mean, it's a bit of a nightmare. It's a bit of a disaster. Um, so, you know, net, net, it, it didn't really feel any different coming here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, and so, um, were you in uh, healthcare previous to coming to the States or was that a, a new industry for you? Like, how did you step into that? Yeah. So I've been in this space for about 17 years huh. so 17 or 18 years so I, I actually um sort of worked my way through healthcare in the pharmaceutical world so mm. i started with big pharma companies pfizer astrazeneca i worked my way up through various different management positions and then i started to work with a few startup pharmaceutical companies in different positions but generally in oncology um, and then around uh, about 2006 or seven, I think it was, um, I was really just in the right place at the right time. I'd met a few people throughout my career. And one of those people was a guy called David Zvransky, who's the professor of head and neck and um, cancer head and neck research at Johns Hopkins. And him and his team have developed a brand new technology, which effectively helped a cancer patient determine whether their chemotherapy was likely to be effective or not. Mm. And it was a brand new technology had never really been done before. And they got a little bit of funding and they asked me if I would help launch it into the European market. And it was very successful. And um, that company IPO'd in 2012 and continues wow. to do very well. And uh, that really gave me the springboard to launch my own company. So in 2012, I set up my own company in, in the UK. Um, which was very similar to the 
sort of company that I'm working for now, Womberg Genomic Advisors. And essentially it was a healthcare navigator. Mm. And it really recognized the, the challenges that people have, even in the UK where you have a, you know, a more structured sort of um, socialized medical um, landscape. Um, but it's, it recognized that for people that have cancer, they go through you know, significant challenges trying to make sense of everything. Yeah. So I set up a company to address those problems and, you know, got some initial funding and it just grew from there and, um, you know, it did pretty well. Uh, I left that company last year and uh, literally a day or two before I left the UK, um, uh, Tom Wamberg, who's the, the founder of um, WGA, contacted me via LinkedIn and said, hey, listen, I, I think what you're doing is awesome. And I, you know, I think you're, you know, we're on a very similar path maybe we can just share some ideas. And I said, well, hey, you know what? Coincidentally, I've literally just sold that company and I'm about to leave and come and live in the US. So wow. two days later, I was in their offices in San Diego and um, 24 hours later, I was working for them. So, <laughs> Wow. <clears throat> yeah, okay, so, you know, it, it, it uh, is always fascinating to me too uh, to to see just the uh, the progression we've made in society technologically, definitely from a health perspective. I mean, it, it it's had to have been amazing for you spending so much time in uh, cancer uh, research and solutions around cancer to see that you know in the last twenty years, definitely like di cancer diagnosis was almost a death sentence. In, yeah. in, in, in the mass majority of cases, right, uh, of cancer diagnosis. I mean, I remember uh, in 1986, I think it was, maybe 87, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was far before the, you know, the, the awareness campaigns. Um, and so, I mean, she was going to die. Like, there was just like almost no question about it. And found an amazing doctor. And thank God, like, you know, she she lives to this day and uh, no more signs of cancer. But, you know, it, it's crazy to think that that was, that was cancer diagnosis 20 years ago. Yeah. And today, I mean, like it, it's, it's still definitely like there are some, you know, there are some forms in, of cancer that it, it's, it's definitely terminal or near terminal, depending upon, or definitely depending upon how far you're along. But um, it's amazing to see the advance that we've, we've had in treating cancer det early detection. And so, I mean, What's it been like to be on your side of things and to watch that progression and to see lives just being preserved that otherwise would have all perished? Yeah, it's been, it's been very interesting. It's been very exciting. In fact, if you look at how much money has been invested in cancer research, hmm. um, if you go back to, I think it was 1971, when the sort of war on cancer was officially declared, um, since that point, we've spent, or the U.S. has spent around four trillion dollars. Right now, what's interesting is it's only we've only really seen significant shifts and improvement in in um, survival rates since about 1995. So, like for the first 14 or so, your first 20 years or so, we barely made an impact. You know, the the the, the survival rates were pretty flat; didn't really change. But in the last sort of 20 years, we've seen a real significant change, and now. I think we're about a 27% increase in the total rate of survival compared to where we were in 1971. Some cancers we've almost eliminated and, you know, we've turned them into chronic diseases, you know, early yeah. stage prostate cancer, breast cancer, and so on. You know, your chance of surviving these can be as high as 90 plus percent, you know, mm -hmm. high nineties. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some other cancers that we're really struggling with, you know, um, some of the colon cancers, uh, obviously some, some other sort of complex brain cancers, glioblastomas and so on. It's still pretty low. You know, the chance of surviving these cancers can still, you know, it hasn't really moved an awful lot. So on the one hand, it's, it's been amazing. You know, we've, we've really moved the needle. And as you said, the, the accuracy of diagnostic technologies now is, is progressed and they're becoming more affordable, which is obviously the key. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still an awful lot of work to do. You know, we're, we're still a long way from really getting our arms around it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely. And it's interesting because um, I, I don't typically like run this deep into like the business silo of, of a guest, but this just so fascinates me that, uh, and I think that for so many people, they have been touched by cancer, either personally or, you know, by, by second or third tier um, relationship that it, it's just, it's so prominent. And so, um, uh, so along those lines, um, you know, one thing that uh, even in our own circle, so I actually, uh, one of my best friends, his dad, who was really like a second father to me growing up, just passed away about uh seven months ago, nine months ago, uh, from cancer, long battle and uh, ended up in his liver and just, they could never get a handle on it. Um, so like, uh, that conversation just kind of brings back up the conversation of like, gosh, you know, I could be walking around with cancer in my body in some early stage and there's really no way for me to know, right? Like a lot of times we don't know until we have some significant effect or, you know, some freak accident that causes a scan of the brain. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, like you got into a car accident, but now I realize you have brain cancer. Like actually, thank God for that. So, um, so, so that's something that's on people's minds a lot. And I know this has been a long time coming and there's, there's many people doing this, but specifically for you guys, like this is an area for you, right? That like, this is where you guys spend a lot of time is trying to create early diagnostic testing um, to, to, to determine whether or not these things are present, could be present. Correct. I mean, isn't, isn't that like the gist of what you guys are doing? Yeah. So, um, we're not a laboratory so we are um in the business of sort of commoditizing or uh democratizing access to these really cool technologies okay Mm -hmm. so i always say that you know the the scientists and the people with the really big brains they're the people that are really doing the the really cool stuff okay what what we're doing is we're, we're taking those technologies and we have our own scientists who appraise these technologies and we're, we're, we're trying to figure out how do we get these into the hands of the people that really need them? Yeah. How do we um, accelerate access? And there's just a whole bunch of really interesting facts around this. So if you look at um, the rate of innovation, um, the US is, is the place to be. Okay, so go back to your earlier question. Why, why, you know, why was I interested in coming into what you describe as a complete mess? And it really is when you look at the healthcare system. The reason is that as, as much as it is a mess, and it's clearly you know, right now it's not sustainable, there's, there's, there's green shoots of hope as far as I can see, because the US is home to arguably the, 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 the most amazing set of entrepreneurs, scientists, um, innovators, you know, people who are really going to change the needle. 
And so, you know, if, you, if you're in innovation and if you really want to make a difference, then this is a good place to be. Hmm. So that, 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 that's really, really good. Um, but the, the big issue we have with innovation is what we call the innovation gap. So to put that in perspective, if, if you and I set up a diagnostic laboratory today and we invented something really cool and it had the capability to save lives, we could make that available to high net worth individuals privately, um, let's say on January the 1st, 2021. Now, before that technology is accessible to the mass population, you're probably looking at another 12 to 15 years, okay? Now, a lot of that time is bureaucracy, mm-hmm. cost evaluation, um, and red tape. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to figure out how do we, how do we you know, navigate through that so that we can help these companies you know, get the, the data they need to then further accelerate their, mm-hmm. their technologies. And in the meantime, how do we help a bunch of people? And so you know, we kind of figured that it, within the US market, if you really want to change healthcare, there's really two places you need to go. You need to go and work with the employers because they're really the biggest purchasers of healthcare. Yeah. And you probably also want to look at the life insurance market because they actually have a very aligned set of objectives in that mm-hmm. they want to keep you alive as long as possible. <laughs> right. So that's kind of where we, that's kind of where we, we, we kind of got to. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think along those lines, um, so, you know, one thing that I read that you guys do, or, you know, I guess, you know, part of your, like the mission of one segment is, you know, to help address um, potential for risk. Um, and then another thing that I really loved was um, I, I saw I saw somewhere on there like um, uh, affordability, like yeah. And so I would love to hear a little bit more about that because I think that. Um, you know, again, kind of trying to put myself in this scenario. So I'm sitting in a doctor's office and I receive this devastating news that I just, uh, that I have cancer and, um, in theory, right. I don't, but like, um, so I, I, I'm sitting there, I listen to this and after I go through all the emotion, of, of, of that experience, then I need to start to get practical with like, okay, now what am I going to do? And, um, I'm going to just say this. I'm not going to put these words in anybody else's mouth. But the last people that I want to give me guidance on this are the people that are looking to profit from my sickness. And so unfortunately, that is the majority of the health insurance organizations who hold the keys to the kingdom. And even a lot of these providers that are just in a very high churn environment. And so... How, what are some of those practical ways that you're beginning to put in front of people um, uh, their opportunity for access to care and then the costs associated with that? That's a great question. And I, I wish I could give you one very simple answer. Um, no, the let's, let's get is, complex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I feel like I need to roll my sleeves up. So um the reality is that to, to overcome those challenges is going to take a seismic effort from a lot of different groups, people, individuals, and mm-hmm. lobbyists, and you know all kinds of um, different forces have got to come together. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, if if you if you look at the basic principle of insurance and healthcare, for me, there's a kind of disconnect because 
insurance to in my mind is something that you use if you want to mitigate the risk of something happening mm -hmm. so i could insure my car against having an accident okay i get that because there's a very good chance i won't have an accident right so insurance works but when you get into the concept of insurance for healthcare, for me it kind of falls down because as i get older the risk of me needing healthcare reaches a hundred percent right right so it's no longer a risk it's a usage charge yeah okay so um on that basis it doesn't you know it the, the, the very concept of it doesn't work and of course how do insurance companies survive they they survive by um charging more premium than they pay out right right and how do they do that they do that by containing their costs their claims right and if you go to any insurance company and i'm, I'm sure i'm preaching to the converted here but if you go to any insurance company you know 70% of their, of their um, offices are filled with claims containment people. Right, right. Right, because that's, that's the kind of business they're in. And then we had the, um, you know, the, uh, the Obama Act came in, and in principle that was a great idea, but it didn't go far enough because now what you've got is insurance companies that are mandated to have to spend 80% of their premium revenue on treatments which means right. they can only retain 20 percent of their of their revenue now if you want to increase profits but you can only retain 20 percent of your revenue what do you do yeah, you just make jack up the, the price. whole pie bigger sure <laughs> so it's kind there's kind of this there's kind of this perverse incentive for insurance companies to keep hiking up prices and keep paying bigger bills uh to hospitals so the hospitals and the the insurance companies are, are, are in this perfect synergy where the more they charge and the more they pay the more they all make <laughs> yep. so that that in itself is a big issue so your question ryan how on earth do you start to unravel all of that well like i said i, I don't think it's going to happen overnight it's going to take a lot of um clever people and, and and people that are a lot more you know sophisticated than me to work that out but what we're trying to do um at a sort of micro level is to understand what some of those forces are and to start to create pathways and services and support functions that sort of get people into the right channels. So I'll give you an example. Um, we talked about diagnostic testing, and you know we, we've we've really got sort of three key areas in cancer. We've got the ability to determine whether you're at risk of cancer. We've got an ability to determine whether you have cancer, and then we've got an ability to determine what treatments are likely to work for you should you have cancer. Okay, mm -hmm. so they're the sort of three sort of domains, if you like. So, first of all, we can we can we can sort of deploy technologies that help people understand their risk or their propensity to get cancer, which stimulates them and motivates them to take a more active role in prevention and screening and generally being healthy. Yeah. Okay, so there's there's nothing like it. You know, if I, if I said to you, hey. You should, uh, you don't, you look like you're someone who's incredibly fit. But if I said to you, hey, Ryan, <laughs> that's a great display. So if I, if I said to you, hey, Ryan, you look like you need to lose a few pounds because you're at risk of diabetes or, you know, um, heart disease or whatever, you're probably going to say, yeah, Darren, you know what? I've heard that a thousand times. I'm happy, right? But if I did a genetic test on you and showed you that actually not only are you um, slightly overweight and your lifestyle isn't healthy, but you also have a high propensity for heart disease because you have this genetic malfunction that's probably going to give you an additional 
kick that you wouldn't ordinarily have had. And you probably will start taking some of these lifestyle choices more seriously. And so that's something that I think can be very useful in the cancer world. We all know that we shouldn't smoke. We all know that we should drink moderately and all those things. But if I can show you a report that says not only is your lifestyle not helping you, your, your genetic disposition is also not favorable. Yep. But you can do something about it. You can do something about it by being more vigilant. Well, so, so, that, so, it's, so what's interesting there, so just, just so people can kind of get a, a little bit of an understanding um, uh, of this practically before we move on. So I shared the story of my best friend's dad that just recently passed away from cancer and yeah. a, 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 a trigger to that was he was not an alcoholic, but just casual drinking over a period of time. And as he retired, go to the river, right? Just drinking beer, whatever. So, yeah. so, so that was there. So then to his son, who was one of my best friends, um, he started having, um, he had, he had some issues and he had hypo or hyperthyroid. I can't remember. So he's already being treated for some things. He's a young guy. He's in pretty good shape, but he yeah. went to the doctors. He was really, really sick. And the doctor ended up telling him that, look it, you have early signs of issue with your liver. And okay. as a matter of fact, like if you continue down this path of which we feel like casual drinking, not even over drinking, right? Casual drinking could lead you down the same path as your father. And so yep. he's like, it's time to stop. And so yeah. for no other reason other than early warning signs and detection because of what happened to his dad, he decided to make that choice. And so I think even off of what you just said to that point, like people need to understand that this is not about like your 50 pounds overweight and so stop eating food. Like, yes, that's a problem, but, or so much food, but the bigger thing is, is early detection of the unknown, which is what I said earlier, which is like we could all be walking around with these things in us. So I think that this is just something that needs to be reiterated because like we, we are now starting to see the technology and so we must lean into it um, uh, for the sake of moving the cause forward and for protecting and preserving our own life. So all that said- yeah. Keep going. Sorry, but it was com, just. Com, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Now, and we kind of we kind of at that point now with genomics where, or genetics, whereby social debate is 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 really starting to heat up. You know, mm -hmm. there's there's there uh, there are um, ethical questions, philosophical questions, you know, social questions. It's just a ton of questions, and it's all really healthy, and it's mm -hmm. and it's part of the evolution that genomics and genetics has to go through. Yep. If we go back. 20 years you know when the probably even 20 years when did the first iphone come out you know people were like you know do i really trust this device to <laughs> to, to to keep my emails secure and then it was like am i really going to put a pin number into the atm i might get robbed and now it, you know then it was fingerprint and facial recognition and at every hurdle we we eventually get used to it and we embrace it and it just becomes a part of our life yeah um and with the same with healthcare you know uh, 30 40 years ago if I could have shown you that your cholesterol is high and that you're a high risk of having a cardiovascular disease or some sort of cardiovascular event, you probably would have been horrified and said, Darren, I don't want to know. I just want to be oblivious and current about my life. And, you know, but we learn to evolve and we understand that these things, whilst they may seem peculiar at first and we may mistrust them, um, eventually the, you, we start to see the good in them. And I think that's where we are with genomics now. And 
Um, you know, Dude, we get we get in the we get in the car with complete strangers and allow them to drive us all over the place. Their yeah. own car, their own place. Like sometimes when people are inebriated and they're like at their weakest point, and it's like, yo, just some stranger pick me up and bring me to my house. Exactly. Like, come right. on. And, and, and we do the same with Airbnb. We let people come and stay in our houses. <laughs> right. I mean, and we're probably only a few months away, particularly in San Francisco. We're probably only a few months away from getting in a car that has no driver. Right, right. I know. So, I mean, look how far we've gone. Will we do, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever come across the CyberKnife. Uh, is it CyberKnife, the robotic um, uh, surgical um, machines? You know, now it is possible mm -hmm. for a surgeon in America to operate on a, on a, on a soldier in Afghanistan remotely using robotic arms you know and, and it's phenomenal so we you know we, we we have to embrace technology but we have to do it in a responsible way we have to educate ourselves and we have to get comfortable with um uh, right now we i think we have to get comfortable with genomics and, and you know what one of the one of the big i think one of the big kickers to all of this that's really helped to get it on the map and helped to put it into the sort of social conscience are companies like ancestry and 23andme who um, you know, they've spent a lot of money on, on sort of marketing what they do. And we, we class them as sort of recreational tests, mm -hmm. um, recreational technology. You know, it's good fun. Um, there's some merits to doing it for certain, but it's, it, they're not necessarily clinical grade, mm -hmm. but it's definitely helped put it into the vocabulary and people are starting to talk about it. So, you know, we've got a, we, we, we've got a long way to go and it, it's fascinating. I think how, how the, genomics and genetics world is evolving and, and where we're going to be and you know there's a whole school of debate but we've just we've just taken on a brand new um chairman for our advisory board our scientific and medical advisory board hmm. and um he is one of the uh, leading uh, and noted authorities on genetics at harvard medical school wow. and he spent the last sort of decade looking at the social impact of genetics and genomics and, and how as a society we will help people embrace it it's fascinating i really honestly i wish we had like five hours i, I really bore the ass off you but it is fascinating <laughs> it, you, you, you definitely would not mean like I, i'm a huge like data nerd so like right now i'm wearing a whoop strap and so they're they're like at the forefront of innovation in terms of being able to measure the strain you're putting on your body uh, which is really a measure of heart rate variability combined with yeah. the sleep and quality of sleep you're getting on on a daily basis and how yeah. that plays into how your body recovers and will then perform. Um, I did uh, about six months ago or something, uh, the at-home poop test, so Viome. Uh, okay. um, yeah. And uh, so again, like, you know, treating it for what it is, but um, it was super helpful to understand that some of the food that I thought was fine because I wasn't getting a negative reaction to was actually not good for me. And other things that I would have never thought to eat were really helpful for me to eat. So, um, so for me, this stuff is super fascinating. Why I think that it's great that we're starting to see more of this is at least all of these companies, the uh, 23andMe and, and things like that, is they're setting this foundation uh, for the next phase, right? It's, it's yeah. like, let, let's have some recreational fun here. Let's find out where my ancestry goes. Um, be, because the next, the next stage is, 
you know, let's get real about this. And, you know, whether that's through my health plan or maybe there's centers set up directly where I can go in and I can have a real doctor, you know, see me one-on-one. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think that we're moving in that direction. And by the way, because because you've used both of these words a lot, um, so the difference between genetics and genomics. So obviously most of us understand gene uh, genetics and the gene makeup, but the genomic side. So clarify that. Yeah, so we tend to think of genetics as being a sort of understanding of your hereditary risk, things mm-hmm. that you may have passed on through your genes and the the science of genomics is kind of more about understanding the whole genome uh, which would include things like pharmacogenomics which is an understanding of how your body metabolizes um, and responds to certain drugs Mm. got it Um, it could be something like um, uh, genome profiling so if you've got a cancer tumor, how your cancer tumor is likely to react to certain drugs. And therefore, we can predict whether, you know, chemotherapy A or chemotherapy B is likely to be effective, which obviously can be hugely beneficial. So that, that I mean, that, that, to be really fair, Ryan, they're used interchangeably. Most mm. people tend to refer to genomics or genetics interchangeably. But, you know, technically, you would tend to think of genetics as sort of more hereditary. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so. I just, I, I just had a thought around that, that it was, okay, I, I, now I know what I was going to come back to. So um, you've talked a couple of times too about um, chemotherapy, whether your body responds to it, different types of it. So again, um, I'm, you know, I'm back into my theoretical, I, I'm diagnosed with cancer. I, my doctor's like, go see the oncologist, or maybe that is the oncologist that delivers that news to me. And so here's going to be your treatment plan. So I, I hate to say this, but I would tend to believe that they wouldn't go to that level per se, as much yep. as they're going to go to their common provider of drug that has this type of therapy, or maybe this hospital typically does this type of therapy. And so uh, that can be super dangerous because, you know, the narrative out there today, and and, and I very much agree, is like chemo is killing more people than it's preserving in, in a lot of scenarios because either they weren't a good candidate to begin with, or maybe it was the wrong type. So is, is, information like that becoming readily available or do you see it becoming ready readily available to where i go home and then i get to do some research based upon what's been given to me to determine or not that i'm the doctor but to help me kind of uh, understand the path that i may want to go down or is there advisors outside of the council of a, you know just the doctor i'm seeing like is that stuff kind of stuff coming as well or does it yeah. exist yeah, it does. And there's there's like four or five um, conversation flows there. Great question. So let me just try and break it down. Um, there is right now a huge disconnect between what happens in clinical practice. So if you go to a York community hospital versus what might happen at, say, the Cleveland Clinic or sure. the Mayo Clinic, and also then what happens in the laboratory and what is possible, okay? So you've got a lot, a lot of sort of differences in terms of um, adoption of technology and so on. Um, 
we, so we're not, we, to overcome that and, 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 and to sort of try to understand what those barriers are, we're seeing this sort of implementation science evolve. You know, like, like I said, how do, we, how do we get this into the hands of the people that need it? So how do we start to engage with these doctors? How do we get it into their workflows? Because historically, doctors have been very autonomous. They have a very binary existence. And they're trained at medical school to take your history, to look at a few diagnostic results and then, you know, sort of scour their brain and come up with a, uh, a solution, right? Now, genomics kind of turns it on its head because potentially now genomics gives us the ability to say, well, irrespective of whatever a doctor might think, the, the blueprint, the problem is here. I mean, this is the code. This is the readout. Yeah. So it starts to change the narrative. It starts to change the dialogue and it starts to change our relationship with our healthcare provider. And, and, and we're seeing that more and more with the younger generation. So the millennials are much more confident to challenge doctors because unlike our parents you know they grew up in an era where the doctor was god and you know you you do not question the doctor if a doctor says hey listen you're going to go home you're going to put your head in the microwave for three minutes you're going to do it whereas <laughs> the younger generation they, they, they don't have that level of um i'm not going to say respect because i think they do respect doctors but they they, they just don't um accept that you know they they, they participate in their healthcare. they challenge and that's good. That's really where this whole concept of consumerization of healthcare stemmed from. <clears throat> People shopping around saying, well, hold on a second. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that this is the best option. I, I want to understand if it's the best option for me. You know, price transparency, all that kind of stuff. We, there's so many ways we can, we can slice this. But essentially, that's, that's where we get to. So to answer your question, yes, part of the solution is we've got to build the ecosystem and the infrastructure that allows people to interact with this science that allows doctors to interact with it, that stimulates the conversation between the patient and the doctor. Um, and one very real challenge is that there are so few genetic counselors, mm. as you rightly said. Once you go through this process, it can potentially throw up all kinds of complex questions because we're dealing with the genome. It's very complicated, but it doesn't have to be. And there's these wonderful people called genetic counselors who are out there um, who can go through it with you and explain it and it becomes very easy and it's very, it's very palatable. Um, but there's just not enough of them. We can't train them quick enough because the explosion of genetics and genomics is being at such a pace that we can't get people through college quick enough. So part of our solution is that, you know, we're, we're building that network and we've partnered with a couple of companies that um, are helping us develop those networks. So yeah, great question. And it's, it's a real, it's a, um, it, it's a, it's a real, um, sort of focal point for us because as I said just giving people access to this technology and in of itself isn't going to solve anything and uh, so another question here so I, I just finished uh, reading uh, talking to strangers by Malcolm Gladwell and uh, he gives okay, a, yeah. and he gives a use case of um, um, uh, in the courtroom as it relates to a violent offenders being given probation that um, AI was successful 40% more often than the real judge sitting in front of somebody's face because AI based all of their decisions on just pure fact. Uh, and, yep. and the failure rate was they went back out and committed another violent crime. And so, and he said, so he said at face value, the technology is far more intelligent in preventing violent crime from happening a second time. You know, he talks about violent offender, goes back out, kills the girlfriend that he was in jail for like, you know, domestic violence for whatever. And he says, and yet still, 
he says, I would never turn that type of decision solely over to technology because the human condition, like the human emotion and human interaction needs to be part of it. So for you, um, uh, to this same point, so um, you talk about the fact that there's just not enough that there's no way that we can train enough people fast enough to, to take on the demand, but is there technology that's being developed or in that is working to work hand in hand with some of that, to start providing some helpful decision-making to start creating some of those roadmaps. So again, maybe me as a patient and under some sort of guidance, potentially just to give me some potential paths uh, into the future and scenarios of what things would look like. Yeah, so um, with AI and machine learning, we're now starting to see the emergence of these very, very sophisticated chatbots, mm. okay? So one of the companies that we work with is actually, um, they just acquired a company that developed it. And so they embedded it and we're embedding it into our um, uh, solution, if you like. But essentially, you, you, you can categorize or you, you can describe these chatbots, even the most sophisticated ones, in a relatively straightforward way. because we can sit here now and probably think of 20,000 questions for a given topic. If we spent long enough, we, we would come up with hundreds and thousands of scenarios from the ridiculous to the sublime. And that bit is easy. All you need to do then is to train a computer into how to categorize each of those questions. Hmm. And when all said and done, you come up with about maybe a dozen personas. You're going to have people that are worried generically, people that are worried specifically, people that have family issues, you know, um, they, they, and I can't really think off the top of my head, but there's, there's, there's really only a, a handful of, of, of sort of personas, buckets of problems that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And most, in the most part, they can be answered by, um, you know, we, we, can, we can predict what, what those um, answers and responses should be. So we can, we can train a computer uh, we can program a computer to to provide those responses, and then we can we can give it characteristics of um, questions and, and and personas to look for, so it knows roughly where to go. And over time, it starts to teach itself. Okay, so this is a question that I've not had before, but it has the characteristics of someone who's confused or concerned about this X Y Z, and so we can start to build the the you know the sort of narrative around that. So yeah, we're absolutely seeing that. I think it's worth also mentioning, and you, you, you pick this up, um, there'll be certain parts of medicine that will become dominated by AR, you know, uh, AI. So we're already seeing, um, uh, is it, is it um, the Watson, you know, Watson computer, IBM Watson is able to um, diagnose through pathology reports, and, uh, sorry, pathology um, uh, slides very accurately, you know, mm -hmm. cancer diagnosis. Now, um, how far will that go? I, I, I don't think as human beings we're ready and we probably never will be, certainly not in our lifetime, to, to accept a completely autonomous environment. Yeah. So part of the trick will be to find that balance where we're using machines to augment human hmm. behavior. You know, yeah. I want a machine. And in fact, if you look at, there was a really interesting study done with, I'm going to say Watson. I think it was Watson, IBM Watson. Uh, Watson versus, is it Gasparo, the, the uh, chess champion? Mm. And pretty much every time Gasparo beat Watson. But then when you took 10 sort of average chess players and you put them with Watson, the combination beat Gasparo every time or pretty much every time. 
So, you know, this combination of um, a human and a, a sort of an augmented computer machine, I think is the way forward. And I think that's, that's where we'll end up in healthcare. Yeah. Well, and um, uh, where I thought you were going with the end of that story, you didn't, but it made me think of something, uh, which is, you know, when the, the smartest machine, um, you know, um, will still be defeated potentially by, you know, the smartest human in this area. Um, what, what that made me think of is that, um, um, the, the newest technology, the greatest of innovation, the biggest shiniest is not always the best. And I think that's another misleading factor. I mean, I'm sure it's in this space. It's definitely in healthcare in general. Um, so I live in uh, Southern California. I know that your guys' corporate office is just down the road from us in San Diego. And, um, and so we have some really big hospital systems here and, and not to necessarily call them out, but you know, they, they, um, fresh coats of paint, beautiful interiors, their campuses <laughs> yeah. are amazing. Like there's yeah. no reason that you would not be attracted as a consumer or a patient to want to go there because you're going to assume if it looks that good, it's going to be that good. Yeah. And unfortunately that has misled a lot of people to pay too much for less than the best care and yep. earlier you were talking about you know when you were making some references like the cleveland clinic like the innovation that's coming out of the cleveland clinic or oklahoma surgery center uh, in their own right and a lot of things that they're doing like there are some phenomenal phenomenal systems um, organizations that are providing the most amazing care and so uh, for and, and and this may be preaching to the choir but for the audience out there that is uh, in the consulting world benefits consulting and employee benefits like think very carefully about how you're setting up to the best of your ability the the, the services that you're providing to your clients because the better solutions aren't always the ones that we think at face value are the best. And then as consumers, same thing applies. Like we do have more opportunity to, to, to make decisions around our healthcare, particular if we start to step outside the norm of insurance. Um, and, um, and so do your research, right? Don't take at face value, beautiful, shiny means amazing yeah. because a matter of fact, a lot of times they're relying on those things uh, and we don't get the result that, that we were hoping for. So anyway, so that was kind of a little bit of a tangent, but that just made me think based upon kind of what you were saying there. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, one of the questions that we get asked a lot, so part, part of our program is that we don't just offer access to these amazing technologies, but we also put a sort of a wraparound support mm. mechanism around these patients. And um, we have a team of oncology nurses and you know, they often get asked about um, where where could I find the best doctor for me? And you know, where where should I go to get treated? And again, I mean, there's there's a lot of truth in what you've said, it, but it's also subjective, you know. Um, yeah. If if I had a if I had a dime for every time a patient has asked me, where's the best doctor for pancreatic cancer or colon cancer, whatever it might be, you know, my first question is, well, it really depends what your definition of best is. You know, best best within a mile of where you live, best yeah. in the world. Um, you know, the guy that's published the most information or the guy that keeps people alive the longest. Everybody has, you know, uh, you can keep you keep you alive at any cost. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be, you know, crippled in a bed with chemotherapy and be alive. That may not be your idea of a, you know, of a way to live. So it's a very subjective thing. But 
again, it goes back to this whole sort of macro level problem where for too long, and I'm pleased now that over the next sort of six years, we're going to see a transition away from this volume-based pricing and into a more sort of value-based transparency model. Because up until this point, it's been very difficult to shop around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you determine that that hospital is better than that hospital or that doctor? They don't publish these results. So it's been very difficult for consumers to do that. Um, and you're absolutely right, particularly with healthcare, um, the more expensive something costs, it doesn't necessarily map to it being better. That said, there is some interesting data around some of the big academic centers having better outcomes. I, I was reading a, a report recently that suggested that the, um, I think there are nine of these hospitals that I, I can't name them, I can't remember them off the top of my head, um, but there are nine hospitals that are sort of, um, uh, they, what, I can't remember what it was that set them apart. I'd have to go back to my notes, but essentially these nine hospitals um, have proved over time that there's about a 9% increase in your five-year survival if you have cancer, Mm. if you go to these nine hospitals in the US versus sort of community hospitals. So there's definitely an argument there when you look at the whole sort of return on investment, if you like, you know, do do you spend a little bit more money up front to have less side effects, less complications, less comorbidities and live longer? Yeah, there's an argument there that that would make sense. Um, but you know, then we get into the whole very complex issue of return and investment and yeah. employees, yeah. employers paying this. It, it, obviously, it's very complex, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very valid point. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no question. The, the, the other thing as well, just I'll, I'll mention this. I think this goes to the sort of plays to the, the idea of having a better understanding of what you're dealing with. And a good analogy is a kind of restaurant, you know, one of, the, one of my best restaurants, one of my favorite restaurants for breakfast is a fairly shabby place in Baltimore, right? It's called Blue Moon. It's a really beautiful, well, it's not beautiful, but the, the, the food is just to die for. You go there on a Sunday morning and you're going to queue up for like an hour, right? Now, if you weren't, a, if you were a tourist, you'd never find it because it's yeah. kind of in the back and beyond um and i think it's the same for healthcare you know people that are in the know aren't necessarily going to these big shiny clinics yeah yeah no i mean you're you're, you're super right i mean so again just a you know a kind of a further plea because um you know people's lives are at stake like we are dying at a far greater rate than we ever have many of these conditions that people are dying from are treatable uh, and so I think that, you know, for the benefits consultant, for those kind of in the driver's seat to the best of their ability, like it's steering people away from the traditional way of thinking. I don't necessarily think that means, you know, like abandoning all the big insurance carriers. So that's probably a good idea. I don't think that's like getting outside the big hospitals, um, though that may be at times a good idea. But what I think it is, is, is setting your, your clients up to be able to actually make decisions um, yes. not just yep. choose the lesser of two evils, you know, back to our yep. conversation earlier about politics. It's like, look, there is, there, there really is a way um, to create an environment where the employer and the employee can make the best decision for themselves. And then, like you said, they can weigh like the John Q story yep. of like, I will do, I will literally like, do anything possible to save this person's life. Good. Then, then that's your decision. Or this other person says, I, 
within the convenience of whatever my environment is, this is what I want. Like allow people to make choices. And then in the individual world or the small, small business, like this is something I'm super passionate about. Like I'm working with a non-insurance, a cost-sharing community uh, by the name of Sidera Health. Funny enough, the founder, Dr. Tony Dale, also comes from Europe. He saw the broken system and he said, yeah. I'm going to do something different. And so that's no longer insurance. And that's giving people the opportunity to, again, make their own decisions and choose their own path to care. So it yeah. is possible. Please do not believe that we are stuck. It is difficult. It's hard. It's a long, long process, but it's possible to get out of this and, and make progress forward um, if you're willing to put in the work. So, hundred percent. And so, I, th I think there are a couple of um, sort of environmental factors that play into that. So, as I'm sure you'll know, Ryan, you know, we, we're now in the, for the first time the labour workforce is dominated by millennials. Okay, so these yeah. the, the millennials are now starting to get into the boardroom. They're starting to make uh, decisions, and they're being influencers. And as we see, um, you know, an increasing number of millennials, and then the next generation behind that coming into the workplace. They have a different view on work. It's not just go to work, turn up, exchange, you know, exchange hours for dollars and get a paycheck. They're looking for, a, for an environment that is a representation of their um, beliefs, that's an extension of their identity. And they have a, a desire to, to create meaning and be involved with things that provide value. And they have this real visceral feeling that Few, you know, previous generations haven't had. So I think that's going to change the way employee, employers and brokers think about benefits and mm -hmm. think about healthcare. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, we can with creativity and with tenacity and desire and drive, we can change things. We can give people much more control over their healthcare we can allow them uh, or, or at least give them the tools to make decisions that are right for them. Now we have to support them, but it, you know, it's interesting. I did, I did a big talk down in um, Delmar in um, you know, the, uh, uh, San Diego last week. And I started talking about healthcare and sort of your spend and the way you construct benefits um, really comes down to at, at a start point, the culture that you're trying to create, mm -hmm. you know, um, employees that feel valued and feel trusted and they trust you as an organization are likely to be more honest and more open and they're likely to have less stress and look after themselves that's got to be the start point for a healthy environment so you know let's start having that conversation and let's start thinking about healthcare benefits and everything that goes with it in a much broader sense you know it's, it's the whole person quite literally um, and when we start looking at healthcare like that and we start you know introducing uh, programs that people can opt in or opt out, even if it's a voluntary type affair, they can construct their environment in a way that suits them. And I yeah. think that's, you know, if, if, if we're going to live in a system that um, dictates that um, employers pay for healthcare, then you got to step up and that's what we have to do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and so if you haven't heard by now, some of what he said and how I'm just going to put a stamp on part of this is quit shitting on millennials to every one of you out there because not only <laughs> is it a, a massive part of the environment and culture that we live in and they are taking your companies over because they, they, want, to, they want to make a name for themselves, rightfully so, but 
beyond that, they have value to add. They have something to say. There's a significant amount of hardworking, intelligent people in that demographic. And beyond that, they have things, I believe, that we have been ignorant to for so many years. Like after the, the, the last um, you know, big crash in the 80s, even through like the, the uh, housing market disaster of the early 2000s, like we've gotten really kind of like fat, dumb and lazy on business. Like it was pretty easy, right? There wasn't a lot, like there were technological advances and things, but like we just watched this crazy increase of business. It was pretty easy to generate opportunity and income. And obviously we saw some blurbs, but now we're in this environment again, just as a whole for business that like it's very complex and there's so many moving parts. Technology needs to be a big part of that. Advances need to happen. We need to take risks. And in walks a generation that is willing and able to do it. And I'm just so tired of hearing like the, the minority perspective make the most noise. Like it's just garbage. It's so garbage. So I, I, I agree. And you know, we've got, um, I I think we've gone into a place now where I can see real hope and real change. And I think we're on the cusp of some major disruption. Um, you know, for a long time, I think that, that you know, again, as a Brit, I, I, I kind of have, I guess, a slightly different perspective. And mm-hmm. I also have to be cautious about saying things which result in a black eye because my wife's in the next <laughs> room. But um, <laughs> no, seriously, you know, if you, you know the, the, America was always known as a land of opportunity. Right. And it still is as far as I'm concerned. But somewhere along the way, corporate America got too greedy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this idea of profit before people became an issue. Mm-hmm. And I think the millennial group are saying, oh, hold on a minute. You can still be profitable. You can still build sustainable, successful companies, but you don't have to do it um, uh, by penalizing individuals. You know, yeah. I, I, I find it horrifying. And I, and I hear stories like this every day. This is the richest, probably the best country in the world to live in. And I say that not Absolutely. by having, you know, grown up in Europe. Um, why is it that 40% of cancer patients in the US suffer some significant form of debt that's related to healthcare? Why is it that 10% of cancer patients go bankrupt and never recover and die earlier as a result? Why is it that people are diagnosed with cancer and they lose their job? The only way they can access healthcare. That, That, in my mind, you know, and I'm not overstating this or being dramatic, that should be illegal. That, that shouldn't happen to a country that can put people on the moon. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think, uh, sorry, I'm having a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, 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 this is good. Like I heard somebody say this about two years ago. Like, I don't believe that healthcare is a right, but I do believe in the country that we live in, it is a moral imperative. Like yeah. we have an obligation to, to exactly what you said. Like as much as I like, I half-heartedly joke at the beginning about like, you know, jumping into the garbage pit because like it, it, it's pretty like disastrous on many levels. But it is like, I mean, I've lived here all my life. I was born here, lived here 41 years. Like we have the most opportunity, like even at some of our lowest levels, we are still far more wealthy than anywhere yeah. else in this world. Like the advances yeah. are there. And you're right. Like, like the, the medical debt alone, never mind the people that are dying from, from a lack of access to care, which is crazy to me, but like the debt, like the, the need to have sites like GoFundMe fund people's yeah. healthcare, like that's bananas yeah. to me. Like the money is there. 
Like, yes. it's just ridiculous. It is. And, you know, if, if you think about it, we, 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 when we talk about healthcare, when we talk, well, again, as a Brit, I've realized this, there are a couple of things you can't really talk about in the U.S., you can't really talk about politics. You can't talk about gun control and you can't talk about healthcare, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're the things that you're going to get beaten up over. And I think we've got to a point where we've been socially conditioned now and, we, and we've become so, um, uh, um, so, what's the word? We've become so divided in the way yeah. we think that even, even if a good idea were to be tabled, if it doesn't come from the right corner, we won't even entertain it. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and so, and so the, way I, the way I approach that is I say, well, look, I, I, don't, have a, I don't really have a dog in that political fight because I, I can't vote and I'm still you know, navigating my own way through the, the, the political system and understand it. But I can say this. Look at the data, right? Look at the data. Let's just be objective. The data tells us that the U.S. has a health inflation rate of approaching 5%, which is higher than any other country. We're approaching a 20% GDP for healthcare, which is astronomically high. Our healthcare costs on every level, on every metric, are higher than every, every other country in the world. Now, that in itself isn't a problem if what we got back was superior healthcare. Right. Now, here's the problem. If you look at the World Health Authority, now... I'm open, I'm open to challenge as to how accurate they are. I, I, I believe they're pretty accurate. They're pretty robust. Um, you know, they're validated by a bunch of people from a lot of different countries who are a lot smarter than me. And they publish these reports and they say, you know, life expectancy, complications of surgery, cancer recovery rates, all of these things. On, on the majority of those metrics, we in the USA do not even appear in the top 10. Mm -hmm. That to me is a problem. Because the technology, the, the expertise, the knowledge, it's here. It's right here. And I would argue, in my previous company in the UK, if you came to me with cancer and you said, Darren, I'm a billionaire or I'm a millionaire, I have cancer, what should I do? Almost certainly I would say go to America. Yeah. You're going to find the biggest brains over there. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not some fantastically clever people in the UK, there are some very smart and very capable doctors and they've, they've been responsible for a lot of incredible uh, research. Um, but this is generally where you would come. So well, there's and, no excuse for really. And again, like this just proves itself um, just very practically because, so, uh, you know, I remember growing up and hearing, uh, you know, people would go to like Tijuana to get surgery or like dental work done. And I'm like, yo, like you're crazy. Yeah. They were going there because of cost alone, right? Not because yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of quality, but nowadays like Walmart, like what, one of the, if not still the largest employer in this country, maybe Amazon's past them, but like one of the largest employers in this country writes into their health plans, travel vacations for certain medical procedures which they literally put an employee and a guest on a yeah. plane, fly yeah. them to another country, give them a week's vacation with that guest, have the surgery done, and it's still saving them money. Like that's absurd. You look at <laughs> you look at drugs, like the only reason why we're not getting more drugs, like legal pharmaceutical drugs, into this country 
because they're cheaper and oftentimes even like at or better quality in other places is only because of, you know, like political lobbyist bullshit that's happening. Like there yeah. is so much yeah. great access to care outside and it's because what's here has become so bureaucratic that it's not yep. allowing people to access what you said, which I believe is to be true, is the best quality is here and it is available. The problem is, is we're inhibited from accessing it. Yeah, well, 20% 20, 20 of our US health spend goes into administration and bureaucracy, 20%. So dumb. So, you know, and it's no, it's no surprise when you think about how, how much paperwork you have to fill out just to get a tooth extracted, right. you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, so we've created this system that rather than just be overhauled and, and sort of, you know, developed from the ground up, we just keep putting a bandaid over it. And eventually the whole thing just starts to implode. And I think that's where we've got to, but you know what, let's, let's, with your permission, maybe we can turn it around and, and look for where there's real hope because there's some really, really funky companies that are doing some really cool things. There's a there's a company called Oscar. Oh yeah. Based, uh, yeah. Have you come across Oscar? Yeah. So, yep. I think they were based out of New York initially. Um, I actually recently met Mario, who's the founder, and um, you know they kind of said the the system is broken. How do we do it? And they they've really turned it on its head, and they're they're trying to do healthcare properly. They're mm. being transparent. They've they've really put a lot of money into customer service. Um, you know, so I, I definitely see that we're, like I said earlier, I think we are on the cusp of some radical disruption and some, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a shitty time to be in healthcare, but it's also really exciting. Yeah, no, it, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I, I get, uh, it's hard to, to be positive or it can be challenging to be positive when you're like really in the trench. And so like I hear and see all this stuff so often because I consult in this space, but you're right. Like there are innovators that are doing profound things, like even in the broker world on which I feel like 90% of the brokers need to either quit their job or retire now because like they're old <laughs> school or they're tied to the really bad system. But like, I mean, I have a lot of friends, um, that um that are innovating even in the broker space like the health rosetta guys um you know that dave yep. chase has done a great job of continuing to to build that up and so they've done a wonderful job in the broker space like there's some you know big uh, there there are some brokers out there doing some great things some of the vendors that are at the front end and partners i mean even like you guys like so you know uh, just to brag on you a little bit um I don't even remember how I first got connected to Nick Belanca, uh, but yeah. it was through LinkedIn and, um, and I, uh, somebody said that, you know, you guys were doing some amazing things in the cancer space, um, you know, from, a, a, I think they said genetic, but, you know, from yeah. that side of things and detection and support. And, and so then I, I talked to Nick and I had some conversation and I was blown away by not just the innovation, but, and this goes to something we said earlier, which is like culture is all around what you value and how you behave. Yeah. And I could tell that this was an organization, your guys's organization was, was a culture that believed in making a difference and then yeah. acting as if. 
Yeah. And, and then on to now, you know, getting a chance to talk to you, you know, we've talked one time before this. Um, but like when I went out onto LinkedIn and said, Hey, I'm looking for CEOs and other executive leaders that are demonstrating great leadership and culture. You know, if you know somebody, let me know. And Nick's like, Oh, you have to talk to Darren. And right. And so that was telling. And then that, you know, in the you know, short bit of time we talked last time and then listening to you and I'm watching you, uh, you know, we'll figure out whether everybody else gets to see you or not. But, um, <laughs> but I can see the passion that you have to, yep. do, the, to do the right thing. Like yep. this is a really, really difficult, difficult environment to be in. Now, many people are in it because it's lucrative and I'm a capitalist at heart. I have no problem profiting yep. by doing the right thing. But I can tell like you believe in doing this and by doing so and by being a leader in an organization that does so, you are influencing a movement that will truly save people's life. Like yep. we... We need to understand this. Like, we want to fix the, the 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 government issues as best as we can. We want to fix the fix the industry issues as best as we can. We want to affect cost in the best way possible. But at the end of the day, if we ever forget the fact that anybody that has influence in healthcare has an opportunity to help to preserve somebody's life, like if we forget that, we've lost the, uh, our reason for being in the industry. Hundred percent. And you know what, I think, I think we have an unfair advantage in, to some degree because when you're dealing with cancer, virtually everybody you're going to meet of a certain age would have experienced the loss in some way, friend, family. And so, you know, you walk around our offices and every single person has a story. Mm. Um, it's not easy to motivate people to want to help people that have got cancer or, you know, are going through a, a similar experience. So we're very fortunate in that respect. You know, the environment just kind of lends itself to that. But culturally, I guess because we all understand the mission that we're on, we all generally want to make a, make, make a difference. And you know, for us to attract the, the, the really smart people, going back to this sort of millennial group, you know, the, we have to demonstrate that we're in this for the right reason. This is a long slog for us. This isn't a get rich quick scheme by any chance. This is a, by any means, you know, this is, we generally want to make a difference. And one of the things I often say to the guys in the office is, you know, whenever you're feeling despondent, you're having a bad day or it's, you know, it's five to five, you're, you're about to kick off for the weekend and the phone rings and you think, you know what, I'll just, I'll just let it go. I'll, I'll catch that on Monday. Just think that at the end of that phone, there's probably somebody who's just been diagnosed with cancer and they need your help. Hmm. Their weekend's going to be pretty shitty, but wouldn't it be nice if you could have a conversation with them and at least give them some reassurance that somebody's got their back. Somebody's fighting for them. Somebody's going to help them navigate through this quagmire of disaster that we call healthcare. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if we can do that? And you know what? You only have to say that once to the right people and they get it. They get it. I, my, and it's, 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 it's an interesting situation because in, in most jobs, you know, you close at five o'clock on a Friday. You don't want to hear back from anybody until Monday, right? Our, our, our culture is such that, uh, and, and it's, <laughs> I would arguably say it's unhealthy in some respects, but my phone doesn't stop. My emails never stop. But I don't mind looking at them. Nobody in our business minds looking at them because we all want to be here. We all want to do it. And, and I think that makes a big difference. That makes a big difference. That's where the magic happens. No, I mean, it does for sure. And so, you know, as we're beginning to, to, to kind of slide into home base here, like I, I have to say that 
I love these conversations uh, for a lot of reasons. Like I, I've just so appreciated what we've been able to talk about. But the reason that I love these conversations specifically is because I went into the conversation looking to highlight the characteristics of a great leader. And what was so phenomenal was up until just a minute ago, we didn't talk at all about it. And yet, <laughs> like, this is just tooting your horn. And, 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 and it's great. Like, you have proven to me, like, if I was looking for a job in healthcare and you had an opening that fit my skill set, I would yeah. be begging to come work for you. Because, yeah, I mean, but, but like, this is it, right? Like, when we go to work, like, we're investing our life. We spend more time there than we do awake time there than we do at home with our families most times yeah. in an industry like yours, probably even more. And so I want to go somewhere that I feel valued, that I feel cared for. And you, you spoke to that in so many ways in which you talked about other people. And then I want also to not just personally feel fulfilled, but I want to feel like I'm making a difference in the things that I'm passionate about. And so like that just comes out in spades as I listen to the way you talk about the opportunities while being very honest and transparent with the struggles that we face. You're also talking about like the huge opportunity and the ways in which you guys are trying to make a difference. And even you personally flying back and forth across the country, picking up the phone after hours, like you will lead by example. And that is, that is one of the greatest characteristics of a leader. Most say they have it most of them are liars. Like I just, I, I so appreciate what, what you shared because it's just proof. I mean, we're gonna, people are going to hear all kinds of like what I think is really great stuff around cancer research and opportunity in the healthcare space. But at the end of the day, like I want you to go back and listen again. And I know you're going to have to take another hour and change to do this, but I just want you to listen to this conversation from the mindset of leadership. And I want you to listen to somebody like Darren talk about the way that he leads well without him once saying, here's how I lead well. So Darren, like, I mean, That's, it's masterful. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And you know what? I, I, I can probably try and summarize this. In, I, I, could, I, could, I could draw a graph which would probably summarize this because I think as a, as a society, when we think about leaders, we have the paradigm upside down. When you draw an organizational chart, most people put the CEO at the top, you know, and then you sort of come down and that's how it goes. I think you need to reverse that because if the CEO and the executive team are at the bottom, they have a fundamental understanding that what they create, the way they talk, the culture that they create, the way they treat people creates the foundation from which everything else is built up. So turn that around. Don't think of yourself if you're a leader in a business as, you know, you're up here, nobody works for you. Turn it around. Everybody that is in the organization is being supported by you. You're working for them. And if you have that, if you have that as a mindset, um, I think you're probably on the, you know, you're halfway there. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And again, like you can say that all you want, but it, it, it's going to be telling in the way that people respond to you in the way that 
um, uh, in the way you drive and get results. Like it just, it, it all proves itself to be true or not uh, based upon the outcomes that are produced um, along with, you know, the, the behavior of the people around you. So, you know, that, that's, that's just such a great way to summarize it. And I appreciate again, like what you guys are doing is so cool. I could have said, I could have sat here for hours talking about this stuff because <laughs> I'm just, again, like I'm a data freak. And so that just always excites me. I love technology. So that excites me. Cancer is around us everywhere. And that excites me, not the diagnosis, but the opportunity. Yep. Um, but more than anything, I mean, like I said, I really, really do. Like I get an opportunity to talk to a lot of people, but, um, but you've just really shared something special in just who you are as an individual. And so I appreciate that a lot. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your interest in us and the company and um, yeah, keep up the good work. Yeah, we're, we're going to try. So um, <laughs> if, if, um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way that they can do that? And I'll make sure to put this in the show notes too, for people. So um I'm very happy to share my personal contact details out. Um, I can do that. Um, I'll do that in a second. Um, the easiest way to get in touch with the company is to go to www.cancerguardian.com um, or wombergenomic.com. Uh, um, that's probably the easiest way. Uh, me personally, I'm always happy to get emails from people I love just hearing about what's going on. Uh, Darren.row, R-O-W-E. R-O-W-E at WombergGenomic.com. If you try and sell anything to him, if you're in this industry, you're fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, if, if, if you are, and again, I know there's a lot of people out there that are like, if you are a, a broker, an advisor, a consultant, an agency owner uh, in the employee benefits and healthcare space, and you have not had a chance to, to make contact with and get to know Darren, uh, Nick again, and the team at Womberg, you've got to do it. Like it may not be something that you're in play with right now because of the, the employer space that you're in or what you're doing, but you need to know this stuff um, because it's coming and, and it will continue to work its way downstream. And, and if for nothing else, just what a great organization to know and build a relationship with. So um, again, no, that. yeah, Darren, thanks so much. I just, I, I really, really do appreciate your time and, uh, and, and all that you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah. Much appreciated. And you know, just if anybody's interested, we've got a series of speaker events, not to sell anything. That's not my job. Really. My job is to stimulate conversation and, and help people understand the journey that we're on and some of the opportunities that are out there. So, um, I don't know how we can do that, but there are a few engagements that I've already got set up. So if people want to come along, I'm sure they'd be welcome. Awesome. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, guys, <clears throat> that wraps up another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. As you can tell, I'm super duper passionate about fixing the broken healthcare system. It's just, it, it's just in me now. Um, likewise, about leadership and opportunities to influence and encourage and support and lead people to be the best version of themselves. So I hope you've appreciated this, uh, this episode that you've gained from it, whether you're in the space or not. There's just so much to take from it. Thank you for your time. Thank you for continuing to support me. I'm up for any feedback you got. You want to debate something that I said today, please feel free to hit me up. I'm always up to be told I'm wrong. Other than that, thanks. Another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast is in the books. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Excellence Mindset with Ryan James Miller. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit ryanjamesmiller.com. We'll catch you next time.